welcome to Ridge to Ridge Outdoors podcast. We talk hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. Ridge to Ridge Outdoors is based out of Temecula, California, and we want to share the knowledge gained through the ups and downs of Southern California hunting. Through this podcast, we hope to inspire the youth to get outdoors, help fellow hunters find success, and bring awareness to the issues facing our community today. Help us spread the word and get our community on the map for the level of skill and determination it takes our outdoors men and women to get it done in Southern California. As always, this podcast is brought to you in part by Victory Archery, the carbon arrow experts. If you're looking to up your game, check out the Victory VAP SS Micro. It's a micro diameter hunting arrow with stainless steel layers infused into a 90 degree carbon fiber weave. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Ridge to Ridge Outdoors. This is an incredibly special episode. We are doing it on uh, pretty much, this is our biggest guest ever. Yes. And, and with that, Brandon, take it away. Oh, you're flattering me. <laughs> I'm uh, super excited to have you on, Captain Patrick Foy, correct? That's it. Thank yeah, you. With fishing game, and you're out of uh, Fresno, uh, Sacramento. Sacramento. But I, I cover most of the state. Okay, so you've been most of the state. So you've been all over, correct? I've worked in every corner of the state. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, Captain, uh, you, how long have you been on with the department? Uh, since '97, so about 23 years. 23 years. That's almost longer than I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> you're making me feel old now. <laughs> yeah. But you have a wealth of knowledge, and we're super excited to have you on, so you can share that knowledge with uh, us and our listeners, and. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, Department of Fish and Wildlife has been around for 150 years. So that they're celebrating their sequicentennial anniversary, I guess you would call it, this year or this year and the next year. Um, and they're actually the longest uh, established law enforcement agency in the state state of California, the entire state. That's correct. Everybody thinks it's CHP, but there were no cars when uh, when our agency was in, was invented or created. Um, our wildlife officers patrolled on horseback and in sailboats. Yeah, it just goes to show you that hey, people valued wildlife more than they, oh, they way val- back when. Yeah, way back when. <laughs> yeah. And things have kind of flip flopped a little bit, but uh, a change of priorities. But uh, yeah, Brandon, what, let's let's get into it. We got a lot of topics to cover. We'll dive right in. Yeah, I I just want to put the disclaimer out there right now that all of the lead ammunition issues, as far as uh, purchasing that's a legislative issue and also bobcat hunting is a legislative issue now captain foy can dive into that if you'd like i, I can i'll give you what i can give you and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll help uh, people understand how how we're involved but actually where that originated all those two laws yeah. in particular so uh, lead ammunition uh, there is a lot of scientific data to suggest that lead ammunition from hunting is bioaccumulates in the wild, mostly through scavengers. So essentially what that means is that you you shoot a wild pig, you gut the animal in the field, and there is lead fragments, there are bullet fragments in that animal's, uh, the carcass and in the entrails. You leave it out in the field and other scavengers come and eat that and become basically ingesting lead. Um, that becomes poisonous to those scavengers. The legislature, and that was, I'm gonna say 2013, uh, decided to, maybe 2014, Um, enacted legislation to ban the use of all lead bullets for all types of hunting or even shot projectile in in the in the case of shotguns the the data is there Um, i 
I support it personally. I've right. hunted, I hunt out of state. I hunt in Colorado and I've been using non-lead ammunition in Colorado once I did the research myself and I learned that, yeah, actually the data does prove, I think, um, I have a biology background, so that's, you know, I'm going to look at the data first and I believe it does prove that the, the, the lead does bioaccumulate and causes harm to our wildlife. Mm-hmm. And when the, the law was enacted, they, the legislature gave the Fish and Game Commission, which is the, essentially they, the legislature can enact these overarching policies and then they have the commission implement the details. So right. the commission was given a five-year window to implement non-lead ammunition. Right. And all of that finally went into place in July of 2019. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're all faced with. I'm a lifetime hunter. Uh, I've, I'm faced with the same restrictions. I'm faced with the same difficulty of trying to get non-lead ammunition. Right. I acknowledge that it's harder to get. It's more expensive. Um, I think it's something that um, I personally agree with. And um, even though the, the legislature is, w- is the entity that enacted this, not the department, um, I still agree with it. Right. And I, I, you know, but I have arguments like this with my good buddies who I still hunt with since right. high school. So, And let's just clear the air. That, that's, that's on a personal perspective, the, the fact that you agree with it, correct? Correct. Like but the, the department does as well, very strongly. Oh, okay. The department does agree yeah, with it. Absolutely, then. yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, I mean... It's just one of those things because guys have those questions and they have the issue with the whole situation when it, when they're saying basically, well, how can I go out to BLM and target practice with lead, shoot all the rounds I want, and the second it's hunting season, if I'm out on BLM chasing deer, quail, whatever I'm doing, I have to use lead free. A perfectly valid question, and the answer to that is when you're target shooting, you're not going to cause any kind of bioaccumulation of lead in the ecosystem in the form of of um, scavenging animals right so basically so it's all about hunting basically food yes so yeah all, yeah it's all about hunting you leave I'll, a gut I'll, you leave a gut trail you know I'll, a gut pile and they eat it and they, I'll, I'll put it this way for the layman imagine you know fishing for tuna totally fine right but as soon as you say hey you know i'm gonna fish for tuna and then i'm gonna feed my pregnant wife tuna you know right. then you have an issue because guess what you know the mercury yep mm-hmm. the mercury accumulating in, right. in in her system it's the same th- it's Close to the same thing. The closest right. analogy I can think of it's off the top analogy. of my head. Yeah, yeah it's well, a reasonable analogy. Yeah, yes, for the layman. Mm-hmm. But that makes sense. But yeah, so um, back to legislative versus uh, law enforcement issues. DFW has a really crazy position in terms of what they do for the state of California and for the citizens. Like at, from my perspective as a as a deputy sheriff. You know, I just deal with people, but mm-hmm. you deal with people and animals. You deal with everything. It's like, how, how, how does that change your perspective on, um, like, from the hunter's perspective and as a citizen's perspective versus, you know, enforcing the laws? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, that, especially with some of my friends in the, law, in the non-wildlife officer law enforcement community, is that the cops have the most interesting careers in the world, but take criminal activity and add wildlife to it. It even, I mean, the stories are just the best, you know? Yeah. So, you know, our goal is to, to watch out for the people who are abiding by the laws, who are fishing and hunting and enjoying the outdoors and doing so in, in, in accordance with the law and uh, recognizing private property boundaries and, and all those types of things that makes us all get along better. And we try to best differentiate the poachers and polluters is another uh, one of our primary duties we try to best differentiate those poachers and polluters from the rest of the public who are following the laws and there are times when those cases are you know run-of-the-mill uh fishing without a license or over limits or take out take out of season those types of cases uh, very high priorities Um, there are also pollution cases where 
you can write all the poaching tickets all day long, but if you have a major pollution event and it poisons the stream that you have spent your you know, last couple of years of your career protecting and, and writing poaching tickets out of, you've just ruined that ecosystem for right. a yeah. number of years. So that's mm-hmm. really, really important to us as well. We, right. Our folks are the ones who essentially keep our drinking water clean. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. You know what? I was listening to a podcast. I want to say it was The Meat Eater with Stephen Rinella. Uh-huh. And yeah. he had a warden from California on. Okay. And he was talking about illegal grows in Northern California. I oh, yeah. Say it was. I, know, I, know you, I know the one. And he was talking about how the stream dried up and mm-hmm. the biologists were like, I don't understand it or whatever. So him and his buddy went out and they actually went into the grove and there was like armed individuals that were... Uh, in this grove and it just turned into a hectic situation. Like, does that really happen? That is uh, well, the guy who, who worked with Steve Ranella was uh, Lieutenant John Norris. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a um, super good guy. And I've worked with him on a number of marijuana grows. I did a lot of the work in 2009 when I was on a marijuana task force. Oh, cool. And, and it is extraordinary. The damage that can be caused right. by illegal marijuana growers who pollute the streams, poach our wildlife, dry up streams entirely right. uh, and destroy habitat all in the name of marijuana cultivation. And there's no licenses, there's no permits, there's no nothing. And the amount of effort that we have been putting into it are now we've reached the point where we have 60, six zero wildlife officers who do nothing as a but cannabis enforcement um, or marijuana enforcement. Just chasing down growers. Yeah, it's millions and millions of dollars being made on the black market grow industry. And the governor has made it a point to try to, to keep that in check so that if we're going to legalize marijuana, which is the citizens have told us, that's what they want. And we need to do this in a way that's going to be as safe as possible with as minimal environmental damage. And we need to keep these black market growers at bay so that the legal growers can flourish as a business. Right. See that that's crazy. When you guys, when you guys roll into these, these groves, do you guys ever catch, um, like large stashes of money at the same time? And then, when you do find it, if you do find it, does that go to help offset the cost of this drug interdiction or does that just go to evidence and burns or whatever you guys do? No, super good question. And, uh, you know, I worked on the, on the task force that when I was involved with in 2009, we, the the largest pot of money I found was $300,000 in cash. Right. Right. And I remember looking at that and remember owning a house at the time and Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, that's worth more than my house. Yeah. And the, when you seize that money, there's a very, very specific process that goes into place that uh, the money does get seized. It does go back into the system. It pays for court costs and prosecution costs, but also it ultimately can, and some of it gets put back into more drug enforcement. So um, not all of it, but much of it. And we use a lot of that for undercover buys and a lot of different things. Well, because you got to think if you got 60 wardens running around year round looking for growth, so that's probably every bit of six million dollar budget just for the labor and then material like your equipment helicopters all you guys your, your drug interdiction just for grows alone has got to be over 10 million dollars um i don't have those numbers off the top of my head but you're you're you not too I far mean? off it, yeah. i mean it's costing the taxpayers millions of dollars that could be going somewhere else and it's you know the the people have already voted to make it legal it's what they want mm-hmm. and the fact that we still have to chase that it just it's unfortunate and well, ruins in our environment yeah you, know? you got to remember the the what do you what do you hold the value of the destruction of the environment? Right. That's, that's what, you know, of course there are people out there who are going to say it's worth every penny. And of course I agree with it because Hey, they're breaking the law. So one, we have to hold those people accountable. And two, we got to shut it down for the future of our, uh, of our hunters and outdoorsmen. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite crazy how much damage 
like egg grow will do to the environment. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. just like you said, you know, you catch someone poaching, they take a animal or X amount of animals. Right. But if you get a grow, how, how long, how many years does that affect that block of land? You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It, it It's like pouring oil on dirt. Yeah. You're going to ruin it, mm-hmm. you know? So it's insane. And we've, we've had a, in 2010, I think we did a, had to do a video just to play for all the hunter education instructors to play for their students to identify the risk of hunters walking in to these grow sites because hunters walk off the beaten path and yeah. that's where these guys are mm-hmm. and it's unsafe. And we have a plenty of anecdotal stories every single year of hunters stumbling into these grow sites and it becomes a really dangerous situation because you got the hunter's got a, he's got a rifle, the grower's got a rifle typically, and they're staring at each other. Yeah. I walked into a grow one time and it was, I think it was my third year hunting it was on the north end of san diego and uh i was in the back country going and i went through a uh like a like a canyon cut of oaks mm-hmm. right and i got to the other side and i popped out and i was like huh <laughs> yeah right there i mean yeah. there's black irrigation pipe everywhere yeah. you know they got their they got their plants growing and i heard something crashing away you know and i was like whoa instantly i went oh that's probably someone here so i he lined it out, scared the S out of me. I mean, I was by myself, you mm-hmm. know, I'm like a mile back, two mile, maybe a mile and a half back. You know I mean? You're far back. It's, oh yeah. It's not like you, you're hundred feet from your car. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of what you said, uh, captain, uh, with, you know, the hunters having a gun and the growers having a gun, how, how does it feel to be, uh, a, a warden going out there and realizing that the people that you're going to be interfacing with are armed? Like I go on my normal beat patrol and, you know, I just, you know, paranoid that anybody has something that I can get stuck with, let alone walking into a situation where you know that your your subject, the subject you're going to be contacting is armed. Get another good question. I get a lot from my law enforcement friends and that yeah. who aren't game wardens. And they say, how do you deal with that? And you're walking up to a guy who's got a gun in his hand. That's yeah. crazy, you know, and but they're they're in lawful possession of the firearm. Yeah. And there are there are subtle cues that you can pick up and of people who are really worried about you being there or if they are just average people that are just going dove hunting and Mm -hmm. they are or they completely set up with a whole set of 30 decoys and they're in a blind and they've got a gun in their hand so that's that's something we're not going to get too worked up about right so but we're when on their fishing pier and you got a guy and just something's not looking right and he makes eye contact with you and then starts doing the shuffle and starts like maybe trying to hide something you know you're going to have to be really really careful about that person because Every fisherman has a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have guns. There are laws that would even allow people who are fishing to possess a firearm in certain places, um, whereas you wouldn't be able to possess a firearm elsewhere. So these are all things that are in the back of our mind when we start seeing people that are, you know, having suspicious type of movements and, you know, perhaps trying to hide things. And maybe it's just to hide in a short striper or something like that. But right. we're on on edge, and we're going to be paying very very close attention to those kind of contacts yeah what's what's the typical back time for uh uh you know uh 11 11 or 11 10 yeah that's a good question so we have if we need to get help um i responded to a a friend of mine just tuesday who was dealing with a guy who uh, this is not even this was uh, a guy who was driving in the oncoming lane of a traffic we thought he was trying to commit suicide and it was a a 20 mile code 3 response lights and sirens holy cow and i was the first one who got there Oh my um, goodness. So he was dealing with this guy by himself yeah. and he was in a rural part of um, Sutter County, just up north. And, you know, and, and people aren't necessarily used to cops going 
with their lights and sirens in this part of the county. And so they, you know, there was, it was a stressful situation to get there. Um, but I was the only, per- I was the closest person and I had a couple of people right behind me, but we ultimately ended up having to book the guy on, you know, I think the public even knows the 5150. Yeah. Uh, that's a, essentially Welfare a, and institutions code. Yep. And that's a mentally disturbed person. Yep. Mentally disturbed someone who might try to harm themselves or perhaps harm others. So, uh, that was a that's a chronic problem for us. We patrol by ourselves, and our backup is oftentimes uh, twenty minutes, um, thirty minutes away. In, in an urgent situation, in any time gunfire erupts, something like that, I mean seconds matter, and we're talking about minutes or even up to an hour in response to get help. Yeah, is is there enough staffing in terms of, of wardens in in the state, or are you guys understaffed, or is there is there a staffing problem, or? What's well, going on? We actually, our numbers are the highest we've ever been just recently um, as of the last governor's budget. So our, I can't really complain too much about the staffing. It's just historically how we've done the job. We've done it by ourselves. And most of the time we're, we're pretty well off. We're fine doing it by ourselves. But occasionally you have those incidents that happen. Um, one of my friends was shot in 2015. Um, interestingly enough, it was more like an accident um, related to... Uh, predator hunting at night guy was saw saw, saw a light yeah. and he, it was um, him looking through binoculars and he shot at what he saw was a reflection of the binoculars he thought it was a bobcat yeah some eye glint or something it was exactly yeah. and uh, the bullet hit him in the wrist as oh. he was as if you can imagine holding binoculars up to your face and your right hand getting hit in the wrist with a bullet and that's how close he came to losing his life oh my goodness um, anyway the point of that story is that the response time for that was 50 minutes 50 with a guy who was shot yeah oh, five man. zero minutes and that when you so when something like that happens is it like a i don't even know if this is right an apb is that like you guys tell me is that like it, it goes over the broad broadways you know or, or the broad waves and just says like hey come help so when you guys ask for help does like sheriff chp local authorities up you know what i mean yeah our codings are different um I, we put out what's called an 1199 is that what yeah, you guys 1199. Okay. um which he did and but he's he's on forest service road 16 north 22 so who knows what that is? Yeah. It's like um, every get after it's not, the, it's not the corner of Maine and Third. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right. So and it's he was he was miles back in a four service road and it was really like a one of the sixteen nor twenty two something like that, and um, the game warden who was figured out where he was because he knew that area was a fifty minute response from all the way from Sacramento. So he's probably at his house. Um, and eaten. by the way, uh, as the warden was responding, he was putting out over the radio. Um, better information to suggest how to get to him and get help. So by the time he got there, we had a, we had an armada of people that was already on the way, right? On the way. Yes. So yeah. I mean, 50 miles away, that's, that's or 50 minutes away. That's, that's intense, man. You know? And so as far as your schedules go, fishing game, but I had heard that you guys or fishing game officers, uh, they kind of make their own schedules. Like Patrick has a set beat time, Mm -hmm. right? Like, fishing game because if you're on a poacher or you're want to be out there like you said this morning when we got here you said you've been up since two in the morning mm-hmm. you know in the sacramento valley you know checking licenses duck hunters yeah. right so mm-hmm. it's like you is that like who makes that schedule do you guys make yeah. it all you just have a mandated 40 you got to put in or uh we haven't so we have essentially a mandated 40 and we have assigned days off and so most officers have uh, non-weekend assigned days off so let's just say Wednesday, Thursday. Mm-hmm. So that means between Friday and Tuesday, you got to work 40 hours. And what a lot of wildlife officers will do is they will try to, they'll just independently determine when the best time to catch poachers is, and they'll work those hours. So they might work a 12 hour day 
might even work two 12-hour days in right. a row, but not work as much the right. following day, or they might just do paperwork right. that, that following day. I, I know it kind of went off topic right there when I asked you that, but that kind of, because you said, oh, it was 50 minutes for that guy, your buddy, to get help, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that guy was probably eating dinner, right? Because if your days are off, who knows? Maybe <laughs> yeah. he just had his radio at, yeah. you know what I mean, at uh-huh. the table, and he's like, oh, I got to go. Yeah. So that's where that came from, but. Yeah, it sounds like you, you know, being a being a warden for DFW, you need a specific type of person. What is it? What does it take to be a successful warden? Because there's like the law enforcement side, and then there's the biology side. You know, how? What is the ideal candidate for uh, for a warden? I really appreciate the question. If I can make this into a recruiting answer, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're um, we require two years of college education. So mm-hmm. usually it's more than most law enforcement agencies require. But a love for the outdoors is really what you got to start with fundamentally because you're going to be in the outdoors. Um, most of your time and you got to be able to be fairly self-reliant in the outdoors so that's sort of the first qualification most of the folks who come to us uh, have some have usually have a lot of fishing experience some have a lot of hunting but not all and they um, have to have that can-do spirit as most cops do so they um, are, you know they're turned loose at the end of their training and their field training and so forth and then with a four-wheel drive truck and a and, or maybe out on a patrol boat for doing commercial fishing enforcement, or even on the folks who are in the specialized teams like the cannabis enforcement team I was describing. Uh, so those folks are, they have different specialties, but it all sort of comes from a, a basic love of, of the outdoors and a, kind of a rugged individualist type of a person. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it does. You, you, you have to be self-reliant. Like right. as, as a cop, you have to be reliant, period. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just taking it to the extreme, it's like, oh, Take a cop and put him out in the forest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's pretty intense. Like, Mo- most of the guys know how to fix four-wheel drive trucks that break I, I and that imagine, kind of stuff too. I, yeah. I would imagine, you know, yeah. you're being way back there. You got to have something like yeah. that, you know. Uh, let's let's kind of shift it a little bit. We recently had a mountain lion attack in Southern California. I know we kind of spoke about it when we walked in. You said you'd be willing to dive into that. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. Okay, you know what? And I misspoke earlier about that Tuesday response and that code three because it was Tuesday that I did the mountain lion attack and Wednesday was that response to help my buddy. Um, so on Tuesday of last week, I was down in Orange County working on that mountain lion attack. The attack had happened at 410 on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, mm-hmm. the family of six. There was mom and dad and four kids were walking and having a perfectly wonderful day out in the out in the wild at um, the Whiting Foothill Ranch Whiting. Uh, now the name escaping me at the moment. Um, it's a wilderness park in Orange right. County. They were about a 20-minute walk from the parking lot, and they were doing everything that we encourage people to do on a great, beautiful weather holiday right. weekend. So the mountain lion came out of a tree and hit this poor little guy, three-and-a-half-year-old little boy, like mm. a train. And the father immediately noticed this lion in an instant had grabbed onto this little guy and I saw the, the photos of the wounds. He grabbed onto him by the torso, just like a lion would grab a deer, and then bit onto the back of his neck. The father rushed at the lion and screaming at it. And as he approached the lion, the lion let go of his son. He had a backpack on and took the backpack off kind of instinctively and just threw it at the lion, having nothing else to throw at him. Um, right. The lion, interestingly enough, took the backpack in its mouth and climbed the tree it had just jumped out of. Right. And... So the family managed to get out. They backed out of the area, kept track of the lion still in the tree, and then called 911. The deputies who responded went to the same area. They found the same tree, 
and they found a lion in the tree with mm. a backpack in its mouth. Oh my gosh. So all the while, the deputy was in conversation with our local folks. We gave him the directive to kill the lion if he had the opportunity, and that's exactly what he did. Good. So uh, we were pretty confident that that lion was the correct lion. Um, the anecdotal evidence was pretty strong. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we still did the DNA work, so uh, at the end of a lion attack, Part of what we do is we collect forensic evidence off the lion to try right. to find human DNA under the claws of the lion right. and in the teeth of the lion. And then we go to the victim and we try to collect saliva DNA samples right. out of the bite wounds. Mm-hmm. And ultimately we took the carcass of the lion and we took the samples that we got from the little kid, the little boy uh, at the hospital, put them all together, drove them to Sacramento that night. And we had our wildlife forensics laboratory folks meet us they got up at two o'clock in the morning right. and they started those processes at about 2 30 and by about the next day at about two o'clock they had all the answers with the press conference yes yeah with the press conference. that's amazing response my yep. buddy my buddy called me and said he had watched it or saw it on facebook or whatever okay and, and that whole forensic aspect of it he yeah. said he told me that and i went wow that's kind of cool okay yeah that you was know? my that was, that was that was the guy at the press conference so oh you yeah you were the guy that did the press conference <laughs> i was yeah, yeah. oh man so yeah. <laughs> it was actually in the oc register too oh man um, that's awesome in, in i read the article and in your interview i believe you said there's about 15 attacks in the last 100 years for mountain lions on humans uh yeah 16 17 depends on yeah. how you how you um measure them there have been a couple of attacks that have involved two people at once so it's just kind of how you make the okay. calculation yeah. so i kind of have a theory yeah okay <laughs> i mean i mean and it's why not explain it right now like so there's no hunting on mountain lions right mm-hmm. so obviously population them being the top dogs out there there's really no predators for them outside of getting hit by cars right okay so their population will expand right so the more their population expands um the lower their prey goes down right because there's more of them they eat more and then they start to encroach their territories you know getting encroached by human development or getting pushed out whatever it is they start going and migrating going wherever they're going to go they come across an opportunity on a little boy right and they want to jump on it because a with the droughts we've had right not enough water so where their prey do normally go over the past few years, they were able easy pickings, right? They jump on them out of trees, ambush style, mm-hmm. all of that good stuff. Well, since we had that wet winter last year, there's water everywhere. So now they have to search further for food. There's more predators. They got less territory. They're taking advantage of every opportunity they can on prey, right? So yeah, the cat didn't jump on the dad, but the scary thing is, is it jumped on the three-year-old boy. Yeah, and that's that's consistent with what we've seen in the past. Like and they're going to go for the smaller victim. And that's the scary thing because yeah. if that cat was not like overwhelmed with the situation or or didn't think anything other than the people, could have just grabbed the kid and, and ran, and then it's done. It almost did. And it, exactly. And that I mean, the dad comes running at it, and it drops the baby. It could have just got scared, boom, and took off with the baby. You know. So I guess mm-hmm. what I'm getting at is. Because we don't have uh, a hunting season on cats and we can't run them with dogs, there's no fear of humans, right? So even if we had like Utah has pursuit pursuit seasons, mm-hmm. you can chase them with dogs. You don't have to kill them. But if we were able to chase lions with dogs, it's going to put a natural fear of humans, which would undoubtedly, you know, curb the attacks. I know you say they're 17 in 100 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've personally had three encounters that, yeah, they didn't equate to an attack but it it's not it's not nice 
I, and there's so this is another subject that goes back to the who enacts these these laws. So in 1991, the voters, California voters, enacted Proposition 117 that right. provided that special protection status on the mountain line. Biologically speaking, it wasn't justified. The voters are the ones who put it into into place. Right. So we, as a biology and the, and the wildlife management agency, we're you know our hands are really tied. So we can't really do anything that the that this we we have to follow what was enacted by yeah. the people. Um, I can tell you, I don't know if you remember, but in 1994, there were two mountain lion attacks. One of them was right here in San Diego County. The other one was in Placer County near Auburn. Uh, and those attacks um, were both fatal. And they resulted in another proposition to overturn the original Proposition 117 that provided that special protection status. And it was soundly defeated. Yeah, The public did not want to see this mountain lion protection overturned. So no one's attempted to do it again. Right. Um, that really does that in combination with the fact that we don't have a lot of data on lion populations because it's really, really difficult to get. They're very solitary animals and they're difficult to really study closely. There's our, our hands are really tied on yeah. how to manage them. I can tell you that the department has hired a person to do. He's our mountain lion specialist and he's starting to do some of those studies and he's trying to look at all the academic studies that are happening, collaring studies right here in San Diego, um, all throughout Sonoma County, all throughout the state, right. and just kind of collect all that data into one big repository so that we can make better management decisions related to mountain lions in the future. Right. It, I just, it just blows my mind because I have, I, li- I could show you pictures on my phone right now. Like, I mean, I got some crazy pictures. Um, I get, <laughs> and I have a spot and I know it's dead. It's just hard for me to say it. I have a spot that has more mountain lions on it. I'm not talking like, oh, one mountain lion that comes in every week, right? I got a camera that's out currently that gets a lion, a mountain lion every two days. Like, mm-hmm. okay. it, is, it is insane. And, and all of my buddies have had run-ins. I have a friend that watched a mountain lion jump on a cow. Like, he was predator hunting, mm-hmm. right? Came up right next to him. Right. Well, this is another thing. Came up right next to him. They didn't know they were predator hunting. Turned, looked at it. It growled at him. Like he said, it was seven feet away. Hmm. You know, big old male mm-hmm. growled at him, crouched, pinned its ears. Like he didn't know what to do. Like it's so close. You couldn't do anything if you wanted to. Right. It took off. <laughs> he screamed at it. He said he screamed at it like a bit. It took off. But he's seen things like where a lion literally jumped on a cow, took a cow down. Like, so to say like lions don't go for bigger prey oh i didn't say that no no i know i know but the, the general public if you yeah. ask them oh they only eat wild animals people, people have well we've told we've talked about it a lot on previous podcasts people they like the look of mountain lions they think they're they're like they're just like right. cats they're like house cats right they're oh, big they're, house cats they're pretty animals i mean yeah, yeah. they're oh, beautiful yeah, they're, they're animals, beautiful yeah. man but I they're beautiful it. killing machines mm-hmm. they're yeah. the they're the ferrari of the the, the wildlife world yeah. in you know in in our backyard yeah, you they're the I mean? uh, Velociraptor of Jurassic Park. Yeah, <laughs> they're, that's, that's they're exactly straight killers, they are, man. You know? mm-hmm. But um, it, it's just one of those things where, like, the public, the hunting community has a problem with it. And the, the people that don't have a problem with it, they don't hunt. They're not out there. They're not in the backcountry. They're not solo. They're not walking through the dark, you know, walking through the woods and it's four in the morning or it's 830 at night. You know, they mm-hmm. don't they don't know what it's like and they don't. They don't come across the amount of lion kills that when you're in the back country, you come, I come across them all the time. Like we hunt in a high deer area and there's a lot of prey. There's a lot of lions. My buddy came face that literally walked straight at him 
And if he didn't make a word, he said it was going to walk right into him until it saw him. And he said yeah. at four yards, it stopped. Granted, it didn't do anything. Just kind of turned path and walked away. It's one of those peaceful encounters, mm-hmm. you know, but those happen all the time. Yeah. And it's oh, scary. They do. And, and here's the other thing. Um, 15 years ago is when the trail cameras really got to be affordable. Right. And people started putting them out in different places and realizing that mountain lions were in places that we never realized they were there. Yeah. And they're pretty commonly. And now we've got these these home security systems mm-hmm. that are so cheap. You know, 400 bucks, you can get these really high oh, quality, yeah. you know, cameras yeah. that you can mm-hmm. put around your house. And now people are realizing that there are mountain lions running up and down their sidewalks. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's Simi Valley in L.A., not too far from here, um, San Diego County, um, up in northern Sonoma County. We're, we're having these people call us up and they're going, oh, my goodness, there's a mountain lion in my driveway right. at, at 3 o'clock in the morning because they're motion sensor mm-hmm. cameras. And they've been doing that for for a really long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. But here's the, here's the interesting thing, and, and I'm going to say it's it's more good news. I know there's some people who may not agree, but that those cameras are now telling us that these mountain lions are living with us a lot more frequently than you might realize. Right. And for the most part, we're getting along okay. Right. I mean, we're not having... I know, yeah, if you're one of the 17 people, if you're that little three-and-a-half-year-old mm-hmm. boy or his family, yeah, you're, you've experienced a lion attack. That's an extraordinary odds that are against you right there. It is. Because there's 40 million people in California, and there's only been 17 attacks in the state. And right. three of them have been unfortunately fatal. So uh, the probability of being attacked by a lion is actually really, really low. Right. Yeah, I believe in your the, what you said in your press release was you're more likely to be in danger driving to the area rather than being in the area with that line. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's like a it's like a Jaws situation, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, I don't hunt our area alone for a reason. And it's not it's not because I'm scared. Like, we talked about it, camping solo, yeah. the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Like, you always, anybody has that fear, right? I mean, you'd be lying if you didn't at some point, right? But I generally speaking, I don't hunt our area solo because of the lion issue and the fact that it's archery. That we hunt, we hunt bows in our area, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't carry guns. Mm-hmm. So, and the fact that when you're running an A20 or A22 tag in San Diego, you mm-hmm. can't have a gun on you, even if you have a CCW. Mm-hmm. You know. What are your thoughts on that, by the way, sir? So that's um, a, a bill that's that is a statute in the California Code of Regulations, or the California enacted by the legislature, that is going to take a lot to change. So, the the, uh, a number of hunting groups and firearms rights groups came to us and petitioned the department, uh, and we evaluated it, we as in the wildlife officers, and said, you know what, it's probably fair to uh, uh, authorize some people to carry a firearm while they're uh, archery hunting with an archery-only right. tag. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only authority we had to relieve that restriction was non-deer hunting related because that's oh. governed by statute. Right. The other, if you hunt, if you have an archery on the elk tag, bear tag, um, uh, antelope, which are, uh, those are three examples, and have an archery only tag, you could hunt and have a possession of a firearm right. at this point. Right. So that's, it's a small change. A lot of people would like to see it furthered and to make that so that you can carry a firearm while archery hunting for deer, you've got, we've got to change statute. Right. A lot of people want it flip-flopped. Like they would rather be able to carry a gun deer hunting. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Of, yeah. I mean, the odds of drawing any of those tags you just spoke out are, are slim to none. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. I agreed. It, so that's why they would want it flip flop. But it's just, it's an uneasy feeling when you're out there, when yeah. you're messing with cats, you know, it yeah. really is. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of, you know, 
getting laws changed, what is it going to take in terms of actual like votes for for the mountain lion topic to change, for hunting regs to change, for seasons to change? Um, like, what is it going to take in terms of voter numbers? Because like, you because you said it's a legislative issue that mm-hmm. uh, the mountain lions we are no longer being able to hunt it, right? So if that biologist that you guys brought in from Montana says, mm-hmm. hey, look, we need to change this because they are over. But say he says that they are overpopulated. They're going to hit their capacity limit or they already have, right? At that point, what, what does the fishing game go to the legislator and say, hey, we're recommending that this, we need to put it to vote? Or can you guys change, or you know what I mean? Um, the most effective way to do that is to find a user group. Um, I don't want to start naming organizations, right. but an organization that might be uh, an advocate for deer mm-hmm. populations. And that user group goes to the legislature or find a a representative in the legislature to carry a bill that would try to overturn the proposition, which I don't know the exact details of how to do that. It's really, really tough. Um, The other option is to spend a lot of money to get it qualified on the ballot. Right. And that was done. If you remember, like I was just saying, in 1994, they tried to overturn that protection on the mountain lions that the voters had enacted. And it failed miserably. Well, you know, they're sitting there grabbing signatures out of bonds. Yeah. yeah. Getting getting yeah. housewives, you know, yeah, like saying, yeah. oh, look at this pretty. And most people don't know what they're signing when they yeah. sign those petitions no, out in don't. front of the grocery store. They don't. Yeah, that's kind of, it's, I mean, it's it's a tough thing, but those are the, the hoops that we have to jump through as, as people fighting for, for rights, whether it's, you know, this policy or any other policy. Right. Uh, it's, just, it's just what has to happen, unfortunately. Right. Could, um, could we dive into the, the bobcat? issue sure. right yeah. now so so we've had guys reach out to us and say you know that they don't think it's fair that they purchased bobcat tags right for 2019 2020 season mm-hmm. and uh legislative the legislative branch passed the law mm-hmm. to outlaw bobcat hunting in january 2020 well your tag is technically good till february mm-hmm. but unfortunately the law changed in january Yep. So uh, another one of those examples of the California legislature enacting legislation that um, outlawed bobcat hunting and the department had no say in it. So that's something that we just have to follow the rules once it's enacted. um, I personally have bought bobcat tags over the last several years Mm -hmm. and I had one this year. So I'm out my 350 just like anyone else who bought a tag. The, the, The bill did ban bobcat hunting as of january 1st so when those tags were supposed to expire wasn't until wasn't that well well after january 1st but you you're listening losing out on a certain number of right. days hunting for bobcat um yeah i think they have a fair argument i i really don't know what to say I, yeah i mean it's i'm in the same boat there's nothing i can do or the department could do to remedy that really i mean it's the tag's only worth i think 350 or yeah, something like I, that so it's really not a monetary thing as much right. it's just it's a mostly a um, you know, principal thing for yeah. most people. And and I get it. You know, it's, it's like Patrick, right? He has to, he doesn't make the speed limit. He just enforces it. Yeah. I get it. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with fishing game. I mm-hmm. totally get it. You know, there's just people that are like, well, if I would have known, you know, or, or I want my money back, you know, like, ah, it, it, it's just one of those things. So yeah. there's, there's three ways of enacting legislation that would govern what we do as hunters. Um, the proposition, the, the initiative process, which is the, the, the process that banned the hunting of mountain lions in 1991, there's the legislature, which is a pretty powerful organization to make laws like what happened with Bobcat and what, what happened with the lead ammunition implementation right. uh, or non-lead ammunition. And then there's the fishing game commission and the commission does the, the majority of the detailed work. And the commission is what is the entity that I was just describing 
um, that authorized the use of firearms for hunting um, with archery only tags for deer and antelope. I'm right. sorry for correction for elk and antelope. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are three entities. Um, usually people start with the commission and see, okay, can I get my job, can the, the job I want to get done, can I get it done through the commission process? Frequently right. you can because it's more of a detailed process, but the bigger picture items typically have to go to the legislative process. Right. How come fishing game doesn't get those authorities, right? Like how come the agency itself, I mean, you're state funded and well, regulated agency. It would be like being the judge and the jury at the same time. You just can't. Well, the, I, yeah, you know, but the executioner and the jury at the same time, but, you can't do it. Well, I get that. But see, the problem is, is that people that have no business making these laws make these laws. We have very limited jurisdiction on certain things. Um, suction dredge permits for people who go who use suction for gold. Right. Um, oftentimes up in the northern part of the part of the state, um, the department has the authority to make those regulations. Um, scientific collecting permits, people in academic institutions that want to use permits to go collect things in tide pools and that right. kind of thing. Um, the department has mostly the authority to issue those permits and do what they think is necessary. Um, so there is actually one more step, but we have very limited um, authority to do to do much and certainly nothing as substantive as you know uh, reauthorization of right. bobcat hunting. See, you would think that those two authorities that you guys have would be flip-flopped. Like that should be a state issue. The state should manage and mandate like, Hey, you're going to go suck gold out of our rivers. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, we're going to have our hands in that. Right. Mm -hmm. Individuals that manage our wildlife in our state, right. That have the resources to manage it should be the ones managing it. And I feel as if, uh, fish and wildlife, if they managed our wildlife, our wildlife, in my opinion, would be better off. And we do our best. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, you give it your all, you know, I, I get it. Yeah. But it just, I mean, it's just one of those things that just kind of, to me, as an outside, as an outstander, a taxpayer and a hunter, mm-hmm. you know, a steward of our environment and, and trying to pass on what we love to do, it just seems to me that, you know, tag allocation, the way we manage predators, the way we manage our deer herds, our upland game, everything, mm-hmm. right? It should fall on the people that it um, directly impacts the most. In the with the fishing game commission process, you would be surprised at how much those institutions. Like, let me give you an example of the extra five days of duck season that we have this year. Right, that was. Mo- I give most of the credit to, to the California Waterfowl Association. So mm-hmm. it's a group of hunters. Yeah, and they said within these federal guidelines that we call they called it the federal frameworks, it authorized a certain number of days, hundred and five days that you can go hunt ducks. Right. And so the Cal state of California was using a hundred days out of that 105 and the waterfowl association said, you know what, we have five extra days. Why don't we just go ahead and extend the season until right. Friday? And one of the arguments we had is that people complain all the time that our regulations are too complicated and they are complicated. Right. I hunt myself, I fish and I got to you know comply with them too. Yeah. And we said, are you sure you really want to do this? Because people are going to complain that it, it's always ended on a Sunday and now it's going to end on a Friday and now right. we're confused. Anyway, they got that passed. So that is a, a a five extra days of duck hunting that that waterfowl hunters got this year because of duck hunters who came to the commission and said, "This is what we want." Right. Yeah. So I mean, that's I call that a victory for yeah, the duck yeah, hunters. Absolutely, it's a victory for all hunters. Yeah. You know, we get speaking of waterfowl. Can you touch on the uh, one pintail limit? <laughs> Lots of people ask about the pintail limit. Um, you know, the California uh, the, the the Pacific Flyway has a the federal government manages the pacific flyway and all the other flyways to benefit the all the populations of all the various species of ducks 
there are hunters who swear there are so many pintail they're hitting them in the head as they're coming by their blinds right and i've had very un- oh, I haven't had that many uh, experiences sitting in blinds with that many pintail, but right. um, I have been in places where I've we've gotten you know our first our, our, our single pintail, and we have multitude of opportunity for more pintail, but we can't take it. So the the question is why, right. um, and the 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 answer. And I'm not the biologist for waterfowl, but I can answer that from what I know is that you know in the places where you find the majority of these pintail is where they that's where they all live but right. they don't have the population numbers that you know green winged teal have right. or american widgeon have and those who see them the most often are generally in in small portions of the state mm-hmm. and they just concentrate there right so in other parts of the state they're not nearly as concentrated and people just don't see them that often right so the federal government has given us this restriction on what we can do we can we have to abide by certain restrictions of the federal government. We can become more restrictive if we want to, mm. but we can't become less restrictive. Right. So we're, our t- hands are really tied with the pintail requirement okay. um, to what we can do in, within, the federal, within the federal guidelines. Right. I can, I can already see a comment coming up um, where people say, well, you're, you're saying, oh, you can only get tighter when it comes to federal laws uh, in, on the state level, but what about cannabis? And once again, that goes back to voters. People, if, right. you, if, the, if the public opinion is high enough for something and they all vote for it, guess what? Things can flip-flop a different way. Yeah, that's so there's true. a ton of power in, in the people's voices, and it can go either way, and depending on the issue. So just a caveat for the yeah, listeners. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. You know? And if a number of people go to their politicians and say, this is what we want, eventually they'll listen you need, you need 51 percent of california to say hey we want to up the limit of pintails <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> most people in california have no idea what a pintail yeah, looks no, like <laughs> they have no idea but i saw some this morning <laughs> yeah well you didn't you say something like you got someone with three yeah actually I, i've been up since two o'clock this morning i was working um ducks in the sacramento valley and then actually got on a plane after my patrol and came down uh, and yes we uh, did find one guy and he had three pintail yeah so. man and and they were nice. They were nice. All three of them, nice big bull sprig. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. Do you, was this an accident, or do you really? And he's like, and he. But the the behavior suggested that it was not an accident. Oh yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, he didn't really want to show us inside his backpack. Mm. Okay. So speaking of that, how how do you enforce that law? Is, is there a like a kind of warning thing, or is it all boom? You're, you're you're it's black and white. You have you're over the limit, or you didn't sign your tag. You didn't attach it to your deer. X, Y, and Z. There's how do you guys approach that? in terms of the law enforcement perspective? Well, there's a letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Yep. It's a, you know, something all police officers have to do do and make decisions about. And, you know, I've been in situations where, yeah, you know, let me see, come up with some examples. You, you have a, a 12-year-old, and mm-hmm. he's got his first buck, and he's so excited to show the game warden, and he doesn't quite know how to gut it. And so he asks you, hey, can you help me get this started on this thing, gutting it? And you go and you gut it, and you realize that, one of the branch antlers, it's a it's a fork by spike, and one right. of the branch antlers is below two thirds of the antler. So right, right. the branch is always supposed to be on the on the upper uh, mm-hmm. two thirds of the of the antler. So this some we'll have these really goofy looking the um, antler sets. So right. technically, it's an illegal buck. Yeah. Am I going to write that twelve year old kid a ticket? You know, probably not. I'm going to explain to him what the law is and right. that the the branch has to be on the upper two thirds. Right. Um, this is an example that I've used one from my own career, and um, you know the I. The kid was pretty disappointed that he essentially took a buck that he wouldn't supposed to. Right. Um, he was relieved that I didn't write him a ticket. But right. um, now let's take that same scenario, and it's a guy who's been hunting for his whole life, and 
you know, he shoots what essentially is kind of like a spike, but uh, by definition it is, uh, you know, that, that guy might get the ticket, yeah. you know, well, he's 30 year hunter and he's out meat hunting, Yeah, you know, and he knows what he did. And that can happen. Um, you know, we have the youth hunt coming up, the youth waterfowl hunt, which I think is one of the best days of the whole year. It's not this weekend, but the following weekend. And, you know, sometimes you see kids make, you, you know, they might shoot, uh, you know, list that using the pintail example, if they shoot a couple of gadwall and then a hen pintail or two hen, hen pintail, and they think they're, you know, they bring you four, four gadwall, or that's what they think. Cause they look very similar. Right. They, or at least to a kid, you know, one has orange feet and one has black feet, but they, you know, a kid's going to not really know the difference as much. And, you know, you're going to try to calculate that into whether or not you write a ticket. So, right. you right. know, you know, educate them a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. So speaking you know. speaking of new hunters and getting new hunters into into the into the outdoors, do you believe over the past you know two decades that you've been in in with DFW that there's been an increase or decrease or uh, pretty much the same level of of younger hunters getting into the sport? Uh, that's a good question, and it's you know hunting hunting license sales are I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. Um, the number of women hunters has gone up, has not a huge increase, but at least it has a little bit, largely due to recruiting. Um, the number of, of youth hunters has has been steady to declining, but not precipitously. So, you know, our we have an effort called the R three program. It's recruit, retain, and reactivate. So, recruit new hunters, retain existing hunters, and reactivate hunters that don't really hunt anymore. Right. And it's R three effort, and we actually hired a person to do nothing but those kinds of recruiting efforts to that's a badass job i want that job <laughs> yeah I want that. that'd be cool man. Uh, and you know what she's uh, is uh, she, her name is jen jennifer Beneday, and she's uh she's an archery hunter she's and she has quite a uh quite a hunting resume especially with archery so she goes around to the sportsman shows and she goes to the fred hall shows right, and right here in san diego she goes to the uh, international sportsman shows in sacramento right. and um does a lot of high school stuff and Absolutely. you know so that is an effort we're trying to work on and right. we have a great group of non-governmental organizations the the national wild turkey and right. california waterfowl and california deer association rocky mountain elk all these different organizations that have come to us and provided resources and some funding and some whatever we need they're there to help try to address we're all in the same boat we all have the same priorities to try to recruit these new hunters um, retain the ones we have and then reactivate the ones who have used to hunt but don't really hunt anymore right that so, sounds like an awesome strategy yeah it does sounds cool speaking of the r3 right so you got the recruit the uh retain mm-hmm. and the reactivate speaking of that one of the biggest complaints i have with hunting california outside of the restrictions and you know the, the ammo and all that kind of stuff and how the line issue all that good stuff is interactions with fishing game and how they're not always pleasant and not necessarily that they did anything wrong, but just they feel as if they get approached as if they're doing something wrong, right? Instead of like, you know, innocent until proven guilty, it's always like, no, you're guilty. For example, and I'll give you a good example. I hunt ducks on private property, okay? It's not posted, it's not fenced, it's not cultivated, completely in the law of um, 2016. Right. So it's hundred percent legal. Mm-hmm. I've been checked by the game warden. It's great. Hey man, good. Check my ducks, man. High five. Done deal. Right. If you get caught deer hunting on private property, that's not fenced. 
posted and cultivated. It's a totally different game. And that that's I've personally crossed private property to get to National Forest, right? And got stopped. And it was like lift your shirt up, turn around, gotta check what's on ya. You know, like it was bad. Hmm. And I did nothing wrong. And I was just running by the letter of the law. And a lot of guys have issues with fishing game and i always tell them like look they're just doing their job right you know maybe they had a bad day whatever the deal is but speaking on that the law is the law right mm-hmm. and it's just one of those things where if you did that to someone that was like well i haven't hunted in eight years and the first time i go out you know we got fishing game up me you know it's like so it's like a it's like one of those things you know so we the law enforcement community, Patrick can attest to this, has changed over the last 10 years. Well, mm-hmm. maybe you, you haven't been on for that long, but the, you know, you read the newspapers, people are, people don't like cops. Um, they, the animosity towards police is, is pretty rampant in right. so many elements of society. Absolutely. And generally speaking, we have pretty good interactions with the law abiding hunters and fishermen right. out there. So, but one of the things that we are pretty well conditioned to do more so now than we were maybe 10, 20 years ago is control of firearms. And we talked, had a little bit of this discussion earlier, but when I walk up to a guy who's duck hunting, to use your example, and he's in a blind, um, I'm probably going to try to sneak up on him. Oh yeah. So, and if I can get as close as I can, and Mm -hmm. then I'm going to get to a point where I'm going to announce myself and I don't want to scare the guy to the point where he accidentally just charges his shotgun. Right. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, identify myself, Hey, state fish and wildlife. I need you to point your shotgun, keep your point, your shotgun pointed away from me. And I've just interrupted his duck hunt. I just made this noise. So the next five minutes I've ruined pretty much any opportunity he's going to have to shoot a duck. Yeah. And he's not happy about that. So, um, but I got to make my, I got to do my job. I, do this check. I can generally promise that the majority of us are going to try to get through that contact as quickly as possible. Right. It might be a compliance check. It might be someone who's just said, Hey, you know, I saw some guy walking through a private property and a rifle and I don't know why mm-hmm. they may not have any idea about what people are doing or that's legitimate hunting. Right. And the, the deputy might call and say, Hey, you know what? You want to go check this out? Cause you might have a relationship with the game warden. So we go out there and then there you are. Right. So the the game warden's going to go out there and all he has or she has is information that somebody had walked through this area with a rifle. Right. So now we got to deal with that and make ourselves safe and we have no idea in today's climate what that person oh, is yeah. if that person's hunting um if he, if that person's uh, or just some crazy guy yeah. and you might end up getting yourself shot. You know, we have uh, about an average of one officer involved shooting a year in our law enforcement division. And that resonates with us each time it happens. Yeah. And we have a lot of people that, you know, there's, there's suicide by cop that has happened to our folks. And the, when that, when those happens and there's constant reminders that, okay, we really got to be on our game. We got to be careful. And, you know, maybe when you had that contact, it might've been, you know, right after one of those shootings that maybe our folks were involved in and we're on an amplified sense of, of officer safety. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what happened with your situation, but and I, I get it. I totally get it. And, and 99% of the duck hunters that you're going to jump like that are going to go this fishing game. You know, they're, yeah, they're, they are they're smart, yeah, right? Absolutely, I mean, yeah. We're all hunters. We're, we're not bad people. Yeah. You know, we're out just doing what we love to do. And I'm not saying they're not out there. Yeah. I'm just saying, generally speaking, most of us are on our on point. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's just, I mean, you're a warden. You hear it. You sure. know, oh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you, you, you I, I, interaction. I'm sure you've been cussed out numerous times, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> whatever, you know. I, but I, I have been personally checked four times in my career. I'm, I'm sorry, in my life by game wardens. Um, one of, actually, <laughs> three so times funny. by game warden. I have, <laughs> and one of them was a um, uh, uh, wildlife refuge officer. Right. Because I used I've hunted the refuges for a lot of my life. Right. Um, and they've all been good. And um, one of them when I was a kid, and and he checked my you know checked my shotgun plug, and I thought, why is he checking my shotgun? I don't. I mean, I'm good. You know. Right. And, and I was, and but he was just doing his job, and he did yeah. it quickly, and it was. He was so fast, and it was just about three minutes. And oh yeah, he was uh, in and out. Yeah, and I was pretty enamored with the whole idea of. Uh, in fact, I mean, it wasn't that long. That was about when I was twelve, and when I was fourteen, I had another game warden come and did a career day presentation to me in my high school sophomore class. Right. And I was just that this kid with these big wide eyes in the back of the class. I was like, wow, that that that's a job. <laughs> yeah, I thought that's, that's the greatest awesome. thing in the world. And you know, thirty-five years later, now I'm dating myself, but uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. So I'm doing it, and it's. Yeah. Um, so it's, but we have a, we have these, these, a job to do. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to do, do it as professionally as we can. Right. And as efficiently as we can. And we want to get out of your way. Absolutely. Um, but we also have to do our checks. And, you know, when you go check, when I go check a private duck club and I love checking private duck clubs, I really right. do because you get violations on oh, private sure. duck clubs. And I'm these sure, are, you pro- you sure you get them more often there than you do on a refuge. Frequently because there's so many eyes and ears watching you. Well, there's a lot of guys that take cost a lot of money to some, belong yeah. to some of these private clubs and they don't like you on their property. Mm-hmm. And so I might go do a check on there once a season, you mm-hmm. know, and you only get one check and one blind because as soon as you check that blind, it's for one thing, it's difficult to sneak up on them, but then the cell phone's going and yeah. you're, you're burned. So yeah. mm-hmm. you, but it's good. So, and I've, you know, I've had conversations now, so you're not going to find any violations on my club. This is, you know how much it costs to be a member of this right. club. These guys are all good. Well, yeah, they're all good people, but doesn't mean they're not, you know, uh, shooting, uh, spoon, spoon bills. And then, you know, when they get to the end of the limit, they got two spoon bills and they're thinking, well, I'm going to shoot another mallard if I get the opportunity right. and then chuck one of these spoon bills in the end of the, right. end of the check. Those are the violations I'm looking for. Yeah, well, yeah. those are the those are the pretty severe ones. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones you you know, it's not an honest mistake. Mm-hmm. That's not right. definitely not an honest mistake. Well, listen, we got it's five thirty-five. How long we've been going, Patrick? Fifty-seven minutes. Could we get into some questions? Uh, sure. Let me uh, do one thing real yes, quick. Sir. If we can get this on record, yeah. Um, I, if ever, if for those of your, uh, for those of your listeners, if you could do one thing for me, is uh, start a uh, contact on your phone. And call it Caltip, C A L T I P, and it's one eight 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 three three four two two five eight. That's our twenty four hour dispatch number. If anyone sees a hunting, uh, fishing violation, a poaching or pollution event, that's the number you call. And if you put it in your phone right now while you're listening, it's always going to be there. And if you see that an event happen in front of you, you don't have to look up in anything at all. You get it right there on your phone. That's yeah, great. And right there. you know. Uh, it's it's tough to, to think about, hey, you know, you're out there hunting and you expect, you know, the laws to be enforced. But guess what? You're the eyes and ears that, that are out there. And if you can make it one step easier to catch people who are, you know, giving hunting a bad name or people who are not abiding by the same laws that you're, you know, you hold and you value, hey, they should be held liable for it. And this is a great way to, to be one step ahead of them or be one step ahead of where, where you were 10 minutes ago. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and plug that uh, that that number and that contact one more time at the end of the show, just so you guys are aware of it. And it is incredibly important that you guys stay aware of it because, hey, once again, you guys are the eyes and ears out there. And if you value hunting like Brandon and and Patrick and and I do, then then you'll do it because, hey, you know, it's if you see it, it's worth saying something about it. And Brandon, go well ahead said. with your Thank question. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Patrick. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> 
it's a two part question. Well, it's not a two part question. It's just there's two questions that I want to get answered. All right. The first one is, are there any plans to reduce the number of D16 tags in the future? So San Diego general season. Uh, I'm, I just don't have that level of detail. I'm afraid. Okay. Um, however, I can tell you where to find that information and, and it's on the fishing game commission web- website. And every year we have a, <coughs> sorry. Um, every year the department goes through a process where they have to look at all those tag allocation numbers and decide whether or not the herds based upon the surveys that have been done on those herds can support that number of tags. That goes into a process. We provide all the data for it. It's all done in a report. It's all published online. Right. And then ultimately the commission votes on that and decides, okay, yeah, we can have the same number of tags this year as last year, or we have to reduce it or we can increase it. So um, those tag numbers fluctuate. They fluctuate quite a bit lately with elk. Right. We've had a lot of additional elk tags lately. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of additional sheep tags lately. I just don't know about D16. So I just don't know that level of detail. Okay. And then the second one with that is... Will there ever be any limited deer hunts in San Vicente Highlands? Uh, that's another uh, more localized question. I'm afraid I don't really, I'm not going to have the answer to. All right. Or so the Canada Day San Vicente is the same thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm not yeah. gonna have, <laughs> it's a, it's a specific question for a specific area, yeah. but I mean, but that, that the information is available. I just don't have it off the top right. of my head. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so this is a uh, it's a question about a specific unit, but it it can go into a, a wider perspective. It's about poaching. Okay, I don't think we've talked about it yet in the uh, in the hour that we've been talking, but uh, we might as well kick it off here. Um, it starts off. There's a serious problem in D12 and possibly other areas with desert muley poaching. Guys that run down deer with side by sides, go off designated roads with their vehicles, or even use uh, blue healers to chase down deer and down in the desert. Is there something that D- is is this something that DFW is aware of, and is something that is being or will be addressed? Generally speaking, this kind of thing happens not very often, but it does happen. You know, in various places around the state, typically uh, poachers will come and go. They will do. A, they'll they'll be causing major problems and then they'll go away for a while and then they'll cause problems again. They'll go away. The, I don't know the specific area that you're describing. Um, but the best thing to do is to keep working that Cal tip number every single time you see it. Um, the kinds of things that so if we can get farther on this uh, Cal tip conversation is what we are looking for that helped us make a case are license plate numbers. That's probably the most important thing yep. you can do is get a license plate number and uh, photographs and uh, suspect descriptions, firearm descriptions. Um, is there a drill, little drip of blood coming off the tailgate of the pickup that you saw? And those are the kinds of things that we're going to be looking for. Um, if you have a gut pile, get a GPS coordinate. Take a photograph with your phone that has a GPS stamp on it. Those are all things that you can do that are going to help us make those cases. So if we get a gut pile in the field or of a, of a deer that's been run over like they're describing, and we get a time-stamped or a uh, GPS-stamped photo of it, and then we can grab a sample of that. We take that sample. We have the license plate of the vehicle that you just provided for us. We go to the guy's house, get into his freezer, maybe with a search warrant, maybe yep. not, and we get a sample of that meat, and those meat that matches, we got a poaching case. Yep. That's how you make it. And with your help, with the, the public's help, those are very, very doable cases, especially with that kind of information. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it's it, it's the same thing with any crime. I mean, you wouldn't watch your neighbor's house get burglarized and just say, when are the cops going to get here? Well, you got to call the cops. You know what I mean? You got to provide suspect information. You got to give as much information as possible to try to catch a bad guy. Because, dude, you know, anybody who's out there who's who's poaching or disobeying the laws out in, you know, hunting territory and during the hunting season, ruining your hunt potentially, you know, they deserve to be prosecuted for it and they deserve to be held responsible for it. And the best way to do it, as as uh, the captain was saying, was you know, hey, get as much information as you can that can be that can lead to a lead to an arrest, lead to a search warrant, lead to lead to results. You're yeah. exactly right. <clears throat> was uh, was fishing game or fish and wildlife involved in the the eradication of the deer and elk on Santa Rosa Island? Another one I don't know the level of, that level of detail on because um, I'm I'm pretty sure that they did eradicate them off that island deer or goats i, I want to say it was deer and elk man I, I i i'm sorry i don't know the answer to that one okay yeah i know there was one with goats um uh you know those all those kinds of eradication programs when you're because they're all non-native I right mean, um at least I, even that i shouldn't be answering really because i just don't know how native they are right but um yeah i i afraid i just don't know that level of detail okay so i have another question for you sir um, it's regarding foxes. I was looking through the regulation handbook and there's a, a section that mentions gray foxes, but there's no, no season for it or no season for foxes that I could, that I could find. Uh, a listener, um, said in the 2019 hunt, hunting, um, you know, regs, there's no mention of foxes and there's, there is, if there is a season or dates, if they fell into the category with coyotes, where. They are huntable all year. Um, if there's a divine season, what foxes are allowed to be hunted? And they just want clarification on that. I can probably answer that question. I have a reg book in my bag, and uh, but I'd have to come back to that one. Okay, so, we'll okay. come back to that because one. Because there's there are non-native foxes, and there are Sierra Nevada red foxes that are fully protected. There's, so there's a couple different ones you right. want to think about. You know, coyotes you can hunt year-round. Year um, and, yeah, no limit year-round just with a hunting license. Okay. Um, um, and some of the non-native foxes you can as well. Right. Okay. I, uh, I got one right here. <clears throat> a few years ago there was rumors of a mass die-off on the eastern sierras is this true of deer so that is a i can come a little bit closer to answering that kind of a question um i don't have specific information but i have worked on a few projects over the course of my career right. in the eastern sierra and we have done some of the really intensive collaring studies that have been done over the years on deer have been done in the Eastern Sierra. I mean, there've been a number of biologists who've gotten their PhDs out of those projects. Right. And what was happening is that the the winter range, which is down in, in Round Valley and then mm-hmm. down in the Bishop area, nearby Bishop, have they, they, they host a lot of, of deer during the winter. They have right. to come out of the high mountains to survive. And they, summertime comes, they, come, they migrate back up into the mountains and then a lot of them just don't return. Right. So we put these studies together to figure out what's going on. Um, and it's a combination of a lot of different things. You have bad weather years, you have lion predation, you have um, just um, poor nutrition, a lot of different factors. It's difficult to really answer with specificity on a specific section of the state. Um, the Eastern Sierra has, clim- has a climate type of a characteristics that can be really really harsh for not just deer but lion and sheep populations as well and it just a lot of it is just weather dependent and just it's just a cycle of of herds and a cycle of life 
uh, whether or not there, there's the man-made causes aren't necessarily the problem. Um, right. Most of the time, it has to do with habitat quality and weather is really the primary issue, as opposed to some other kind of a man-made uh, cause. Okay. In uh, this is my own question: If we ever have another bad winter up in the Sierras, does California ever have a contingency plan on to go as far as to like actually feed the herd that comes down? To the to the wintering grounds, you know, other states do it, and it's yeah. There are other states that do it. Um, that's outside my area of expertise, and I've I'm unaware of any plan like that. Right. I know that when you know when the herds there's a there's a nature sends a signal that it's going to get cold and it's going to stay cold and yeah. there's going to be snow on the ground, and you'll see a, a herd of deer by the hundreds and hundreds of them, if thousands maybe, that'll just migrate out or downhill. Right. And they'll just go into these critical winter range habitats. So the critical winter range is the habitat that is required for these animals, herds, you know, the her, as, a, as a herd at the herd level, that's what they require to survive right. the winter. And one of our best strategies to dealing with that situation is to protect that type of habitat. Even with protected critical winter range habitat, you're still going to have fluctuations in those populations. Right. So... With, I, without being able to under, you know, have the detail of, of population estimates and data that might be better to answer that question specifically, I can say just on a, on a grander scale, those are the habit, habitat really is where your populations are going to thrive or really not do well. Right. It, they, I can't remember where I heard this, but I had heard it that, well, I guess the question is in the off season of deer season, right? Like late winter. January, February, up in those snowy areas, those winter grounds, does fishing game have a higher presence or try to keep track of what's going on out there based on the, uh, uh, I don't even know if it's, if it's, what am I trying to say? Does, does fishing game stay out there to, to monitor it for harassment of game? Because say like the deer herd is out there, right? The caloric intake of a deer is definitely not what it is during the summer, right? And sure. they're scraping, they're burning calories all day, trying to stay warm. Mm-hmm. If they, if they're getting harassed or, or in intentionally or unintentionally by some people out there on BLM, riding quads, snowmobiles, whatever, um, pushing deer around. I've heard that deer, if they give a mass expenditure of calories and energy in a hard winter, I mean, they can die like the next day. Because they're they're like a bird, you know. They're running right on that threshold, always yeah, in the wintertime. It's wildlife, you know, and it's, that can be said for deer, for other animals, and for birds and smaller smaller game as well. So when you have really harsh habitat conditions and you, and add in a harassment element to it by um, it, some of the people are you know, bird watching or right. um, people who are antler hunting, you know, because in the February is when the antlers start and fall off, falling off the animals' heads and people like to go out there and collect right, them right well they're harassing a lot of deer and they're pushing them into places that they pushing them in for reasons that they wouldn't be pushed normally right and they are expending those extra calories every calorie counts when yeah. you're a wild animal living out in the freezing cold exactly. so they can't go to in and out yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah so uh is there there is i mean there's a statute uh, correction there's a regulation that prevents a person from harassing animals right. essentially what would be someone who were to Unnecess- unnaturally interrupt an animal's normal migration pattern or or 
uh, you know, outright harassing the animal just for the purpose of harassing it. Right. Uh, those are difficult cases to get prosecuted, so it doesn't get written that often. But if you can conclusively prove that a person's actions are causing uh, an animal to change its behavior right. in a way that's detrimental or even fatal to that animal, that's when you you might have a case. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah, and then that kind of goes back to um, if you see something, say something. So I'm going to go ahead and plug... Uh, that Caltip uh, contact one more time. Uh, put it in your phones as C A L T I P, just Caltip, and that telephone number one more time is 1 Thank and, you, Patrick. Yeah, just throw it in there because, hey, man, if you can get a video of it, every single hunter that's out there, every single outdoorsman, guess what? They have a GPS unit, yep. they have bina- they have glass, and they have, you know, they have a phone. Yeah. So if you have a phone scope, perfect. You know, yeah. just throw it on video and and get your GPS location, get your get your camera rolling, get some photos, and then boom, uh, send that over to law enforcement, and then hopefully you can get a case made, and that person can get uh, get prosecuted for it. Right. Because because how do you how do you fix a broken wheel? Yeah, you you get a mechanic on it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, listen, Captain. Um, we appreciate it so much. Uh, this has kind of been a long time coming. I think it's a two year, two month process to try to yeah. get you on this. And we just kind of got our schedules to link up. A lot of worked out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an awesome thing for our listeners and, and our YouTube viewers that are going to listen to this. It, it's a good thing. And, uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Uh, thanks yeah. for having me. And thank, I really appreciate thank your you show. so much, sir. Yeah. You have, uh, so much knowledge that you've given us and, and our, our listeners. And we really appreciate you coming on and, and, and spending your time. Thanks for uh, doing what us. you do. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, Brandon, do you have anything else you want to add? I think that's it, man. All right. And, uh, Captain Ford, do you want to add anything? Do you want to plug anything? Oh, I appreciate your offer, offer, but, uh, take, take a kid hunting. That, there you go. How about that? There you I go. like Take it. a kid hunting. I like it. It's all about stewardship at mm. the end of it. All right, Brandon, that's another one. That's it. That's it.